And over again now to the group from Ireland, them. And as promised, here's their own composition, Gloria. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Them and Gloria live on uh, BBC Saturday Club way back in March 1965. I've got a huge pleasure to welcome Jackie McCauley, who's featured in Them, uh, Belfast Gypsies, Trader Horn, as well as a a prolific solo career, as well as um, a session player on on many tracks. Uh, Welcome, Jackie. Hello there. It's great to talk to you. Um, can you tell me about um, the music scene in, in Northern Ireland in the in the mid-60s and how you got involved with Van Morrison and, and them? Yeah, yeah. In the very early days, 50s and 60s, the early 60s, the big thing in Ireland was the show bands. Uh, they were running like eight or nine-piece bands, sometimes 11, 12 people. And they would fill all the ballrooms all around Ireland, North and South. When, when the smaller groups were playing, they were playing more of country and western music. 
There wasn't any kind of rock scene at the time. So that all changed, you know, with gradually when, when people like the Beatles and the Stones came in, you know, more more smaller groups became acceptable. Of of uh, four or five piece band became more acceptable. People didn't worry about the uh, four piece brass section anymore. Mm. So it became very quickly and quite rapidly um, vibrant for smaller bands. Also, the, the, the venues didn't have to pay. The, the kind of money that the show bands were making. Show bands were making very big money. They had to because there was so many people in the band and good personnel. But the smaller smaller venues didn't have to pay that much money. So they didn't have to have yeah. the capacity for uh, like ballrooms. There were small, well, before even pub scenes, they became pub scenes. There were small rooms here and there. It became very, uh, very, very popular to have small bands. So there was a lot of us, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of venues. I mean, some of these venues were smaller, only hold fifty people, and uh, that's how it really started. And the music was kind of early rock, rock and roll stuff, and and uh, Lonnie Donegan, Skiffle kind of thing. We were all getting into it. it was fantastic. You didn't need yeah. to be a brilliant musician. And you didn't need a big band to play this kind of stuff. So we all followed that trend. It wasn't much different than, I would say, Liverpool or Manchester or London, do you know what I mean? And with that trend, because of the material that was needed, we were looking for material. The only kind of smaller material was that there was a, was a country and western type of stuff, uh, like uh, mm. Hank Williams, Hank Snow, all that kind of stuff. But uh, we needed something more dynamic sort of R&B started to creep in and we became hunters for R&B stuff. Yeah. Then it became blues. We were looking for John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, all this kind of stuff. That all fitted in with the small band and the small venues. In Belfast, you'll always have the vanguard, the band that lead everybody else. It was a band called uh, them. Mm. They, it, before them, three guys in the band, four guys in the band, they called them. Yeah, they, they were called the Ramblers. The uh, the guy that had the idea of opening up another club in Belfast, especially for this R and B stuff and blues stuff. Same thing as the pretty things and the Rolling Stones were doing in London at the time. So they got this venue together and they they pulled this band in the Ramblers. So we're going to start a new thing. And Van had just joined them. They were looking for somebody else, but Billy with Harrison was a singer in the band, and Van played the saxophone. So, so I think Van actually handed the lads to and joined the band. The guys who put the venue on there were sort of three young businessmen, and my brother Pat, who was a drummer, worked with them. With one of them, they worked. With, yeah. They worked in some some aspect of the uh, film business. I can't even remember. It was his first job in the school. So they were friends and. Um, my brother was also an artist. He did, he, when they put on other venues, they put on other things. He drew the posters for them. So anyway, they got them. They got them into this club to start off the, the thing, and that's how the band started. Then my brother joined the band. Maybe about three months later, joined the band on keyboards. I was playing keyboards with another young band, yeah. and he, and he uh, but he wasn't a keyboard player, but he could play a bit of keyboards. So they went off to England and and, and did some venues and stuff. And, when they came back, my brother moved on to drums because the drummer left. He, he said, uh, sorry, this, this is no good. There's no money. I've got a family to keep. So 
he left and they came back to Belfast at the end of 1964, November 64, and uh, they'd just released Billy Please Don't Go. So they'd come back and uh, there were a couple of gigs lined up, but they had no keyboard player. So they asked me, would I temporarily sit in with them? I was 17. Oh, right. The keyboard player they had before I was 16. His parents wouldn't let him go to, to England, traveling around, you know, quite rightly so in those days. So uh, they pulled him out of the band. So when they offered me the job, I do it um, temporarily until they find something, I said, yes, it's terrific, because I was only 17. I think they didn't want to go down that road again, lose another player. So I joined the band, uh, and in December of the same year, I turned 18. And their manager asked me to sign the contract, so I signed the contract, and I was in the band. So that's how it rolled along. A great time to join the band, because I think you were on Top yeah. of the Pops so- soon after you joined. Yeah, the song Baby Please Don't Go was used in the television program Ready, Steady, Go. That was, that was a sort of a, during the opening, opening um, credits. So that was used on that program for about six or eight weeks, and that hit the charts. So when I joined the band, well, before I hit the charts, I, we were traveling around Ireland and we doing uh, clubs everywhere and pubs type of thing. And we were doing slightly bigger venues. We were brought in to, to a support band to show bands on the big ballroom circuit, which the punters didn't like us at all. They didn't like us threw things at us and all sorts of things. Right. And they threw furniture at us. <laughs> <laughs> Anything they could find. So that didn't work. Uh, a lot of the festivals didn't get paid. We got ripped off. Yeah. But um, then we were called back to England because the uh, Baby Please Don't Go had hit the charts. So we were straight over there. Back at, I think the first program I did, program called Thank You Lucky Stars. It was Thank You Lucky Stars, Ready, Steady, Go, and a Top of the Pops. Not a bad single, really. So, so on the A-side, Baby Please Don't Go, and then yep. Gloria on the flip. Gloria, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, Gloria was was, was a big hit in Belfast at, at the gig. Yeah, where we used to do the gigs, everybody liked Gloria. But the management thought, no, best to do this is more upbeat and blah blah blah. I don't know, just interference really, you know, from the management who wasn't very good at the time. So we were kind of going around the UK and Ireland in a in a van. We went round. We we went. We first went over in a car. Right. It was a, a state car. I, I can't actually remember what it was. I say I was just a kid. Uh, I couldn't drive at the time, so it didn't interest me. It was just getting into the car with all the gear on the back. And that's how we went to Top of the Pops. Right. Top of the Pops was in Manchester. We drove over to Manchester, and the the, the studio was a converted church, which was uh, fabulous, lovely. Um, it was just a strange getting there, and there were other bands there. We had played with uh, The Who and Kinks and whatever. <laughs> this big hall, sectioned off in places with cameras and people milling about. It's what you don't see on, 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 on TV when you're at home, because it's all, it's all cut and edited and whatever. It looks very, very classy and very posh, but it wasn't. It was just an old church. Mm. <laughs> and people sort of... Um, Maneuvered all around the floor by cameramen and all sorts of people, maneuvering the audience to make them look bigger than they were. 
But it was an incredible program. I think it on top of the top three guaranteed a hit. That was my first experience. And I remember my first experience was um, Thank You Lucky Stars. That was an even smaller studio. That was very tiny. And it's the same, same sort of thing. But there were a few programs. I think there was another one. I can't remember the name of it now. But there was a lot of programs. There was Jukebox Jury. Here Comes the Night, a bit of a, a shift in sound. What what was the um, what was your sort of reaction to, to that track being uh, picked as a single? Well, that was written by Brad Burns, that song. He was a, he had written a lot of hit records. And um, the I'm not quite sure what it was picked by a producer, who was Tommy Scott, or the management, or both, or however that came about. But it was a it was a song that uh, Burt Burns had faith in, but it, it didn't it, it died a death. The first person to do that was Lulu. Right. She actually recorded that about six months or five six months before, and it bombed. So uh, and it was just weird. But a week we got to do it, and it became a hit. And it was very different from what we were normally pushing on the road. You know, we were doing our, a lot of R and B stuff. You know, Vamos Tang Harp and Sax and whatever.
your period in the band seems un- unjustifiably. It seems that you were kind of pushed out of the band un- unfairly. I, I wasn't. I wasn't pushed out of the band unfairly. The sort of uh, psychological state that the band was in at that time. We were bombing all over the country. I mean, Baby Case that was was still in the chart when uh, Here Comes the Night came in. Here Comes the Night went to number two. It was only pushed off the number one spot by the Beatles. Yeah. And we were driving around in this old van. It was a terrible old van. There wasn't even proper seats in it. We had bad management, seriously bad management. Mm. Um, we, that we were contracted to. That's all in the book anyway. It's, I don't want to go into that. It'll take too long. But we were exhausted. We were burning ourselves out really big time. We were driving up. We were driving around from Portsmouth to Preston and back to London and back up to Manchester, back down to Southampton. This, there was no uh, tour, organized tour set up for us. We were just given whatever gigs came in by the management and the agent. But uh, we were getting seriously burnt out. We weren't talking to each other. Mm. Seriously, we weren't talking to each other. Yeah. One week, somebody was going to leave the band. I'm leaving. I've had enough of this. You know, we don't like you. Where did you leave? <laughs> this kind of thing. This, this is the way it went on. And I goofed up very badly. I didn't turn up for one of the gigs. And that was it. So that was the, the powder keg that exploded. I, I was I was told, told to... Gosh get out, go away. And I didn't fight it. I didn't fight it. I complained about it. I just left and went back home. And shortly after that, Billy, yeah. uh, Billy Harrison, decided he was going to leave. He'd have enough. And then Billy left. And then my brother left. And there was no one but Van and the best And this is not even, this is like just over a year since the band formed. You know, the band, the just band had made it Literally five, six months maybe. That was, I mean, a lot of people say yes, it was, that was quite tragic, but it was it was so badly handled because we were all pretty young, and I was the youngest of, of the lot, so I paid the penalty, and so did the other guys. Van went off to America with uh, Alan Henderson, the bass player, but brought in a few more guys from Ireland, guys that we knew. <laughs> Who came? Who joined the band, and then they left. So it, it was it was a complete disaster. So by sort of late '65, early '66, the you and your brother were, were kind of um, calling yourselves them and, and back on the road. And uh, was that was that through Kim Fowley? No, this was the, this was the Belfast Gypsies. I was I was in London, or I was in Dublin playing with Paul Brady and the band called The Cult. I had yeah. some bad experiences down there, not with the band system personal experiences so I came back to Belfast my brother called he rang up he was in London do I want to come over and join the band they're going to be doing some gigs you know because I'd like to join up with them so I said yeah uh, why not so I got over there um, I stayed here at Bedford or something somewhere so I stayed with him and we we had a couple of other guys guys from Belfast Ken McLeod and another guy from yeah, uh, Guildford and Surrey called um, Mark Mark Scott on bass, and we got together and we went through putting a whole repertoire of R and B and blues. Yeah, of course we have to do some of them stuff because we were asked to do them, so we learned a few of them things. 
because we, what are we going to call our band? We're going to call our band then, because we have the rights. No, no one seems to have the rights to the name. But there was two of us out of the band. Mm. Van had gone solo, so that left the other two. So there was a bit of a, a fight over the, the, I think it was the management put the fight up because he didn't want anybody making any money out of it. So uh, we were just sort of wandering around and met up with Tim Fowler, who, who had been a then fan, and we got talking to him. He says, what about if I get you a deal and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Thanks, Tim, to, uh, to a great head when uh, he disappeared and came back. He says, I've got you a gig. I've got you a deal with Sonnet Records in Denmark. <laughs> Gosh. So I was, we went, all right, well, let's make an al- one album, and then if that goes well, we can make another album, a little piece of the album, blah, blah, blah. So we thought, all right, so we went off to to Denmark. Oh, but one of the conditions was that we were going to call, we changed the name. So it was Kim Fowler that came up with the name The Belfast Gypsy. We thought, great. Right. But Sonnet, in their wisdom, thought, hmm, we need to use the them thing because they need to sell these records. We, we never knew anything about it. We've seen the photographs that were chosen for the album cover. Then when the album came out, we saw the album cover. We didn't expect it. It comes out as them, Belfast Gypsies. Yeah. So that's how that really happened. Yeah. yeah. That album was uh, seen at release on um, Grapefruit imprint of uh, Che Red at the minute. I've, I've chosen um, yeah. an early 1966 demo of I Want You, which was a Graham Bond cover. It, it's got that real tough R&B sound, which yeah. is, uh, you know, brilliant. There's quite a few songs on there. But, but we were never, were never meant to be... We were never meant to be long-term band seriously about it, you know what I mean? Because I hadn't really made, I hadn't made up my mind which direction I wanted to go and what I, what I wanted to do. And, no. Uh, a couple of lads in the band, I didn't know who they were, really. Not, not great chemistry, I'm afraid, between us. So I was in that end. But uh, after a while, I decided to, I, I, I want to get back to London now because while we were, we were in Denmark, Peter Bardens had left them so I was replaced in the band then by Peter Barden's keyboard player. Peter went on to join a foreign camel. So he came and joined the Belfast Gypsies in Denmark. Right. He, he, he left them. And then was just turning into a, a turnstile of musicians just in one end and out the other. So, um, so Peter came over and, and stayed with us for a while. And he, he, I think he brought a couple of albums with him. Told us how the scene in, in London was really taking off. See, back in 63, 64, there wasn't a real big scene in London. That's the funny thing. There was, was a better scene in Manchester. You had the Oasis and the Twisted Wheel and all this kind of great clubs, brilliant rock venues. But they didn't, they didn't seem to exist in London. But by, by about 66, 67, they did. Yeah. They were really coming into the thing. It was just uh, a really buzzing, Buzzing, buzzing time, and the band it was Cream had just formed, and uh, that was it for me. They were just brilliant. I had to go back to London to you know get get on as the scene, as it were. So we went back 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 to London, and the, the sort of band basically disintegrated.
Didn't you have a, a minor hit in the US with Secret Police? The Secret Police, apparently it was like, it was doing very well in America, but it disappeared very quickly. I think another band recorded that track as well. Right, okay, because it was a Kim Fowley. As a Kim Fowley, Kim Fowley, so it became, would have been promoting that more than anything else. But uh, by then, we had come back to the 67, things were changing big time in London. Yeah, I imagine the music scene was evolving away from the, the sort of R&B side. It was turning into rock. Yeah. There was a load of blues stuff, the R&B blues stuff still. All the, all, all the guitar players were coming up, Peter Green, Eric Clapton, of course. Yeah. You know, and, and bands that were evolving, like Led Zeppelin. 67 was a very pivotal point. There was also... Uh, beginning this, this psychedelic kind of music mm-hmm. that's coming up. You know, there also the, the start and beginnings of Pink Floyd and all these kind of bands at the very, very beginning. The next couple of years in London, it was just really, really, really buzzing. So it really was, it was a, I think that was the centre of the universe there at that time. Can you hide? down my door. My dad's behind the curtain, our mama's on the floor. I owe the grocery money, but I can't pay the rent. Not dying in the dungeons where my brothers have been sent. Wars with life, they never give me peace. Black gloves hiding sun, it's a secret police. Sweating in the attic, above the steamy streets. Hearing evil noises, all the stabbing feet. I say so, but... I keep it still, whiten his diary reads, back just like a will. Wars with light, no, they never give me peace. Black gloves hide the sun, in the secret police. Pistols blowing sunlight, shining on the wall. They're coming up the stairs, they're marching down the hall. They're coming up the stairs, they're marching down the hall. A devil's henchman needs no more proof, puts my sister in the attic. My mother on the roof Running out of scratching They can't catch me single by Trader Horn was a track of yours called Sheena. It does feel like it's yeah. it embodies that 67, 68 sort of sound. Yeah. 
the Trader Horn thing really was the time I really started writing. I've written stuff for um, the Belfast Gypsies, yeah. early kind of stuff, you know, very na- naive writing, but still people like that type of thing. When I joined up with uh, a guy called Pete Sears, Pete uh, was a multi-instrumentalist, and it was us two that decided, well, let's do something, because up in, I think, I can't remember where they came from, but uh, the Incredible String Band were going. We, we quite liked that kind of thing. Between the two of us, we played a pile, and a pile of instruments. And it was picking you and Judy. We and introduced me to Judy. So it was the three of us, really. Mm. We had no name or nothing. It started accumulating some friends because of the circles that we moved in. And uh, Pete left one day. He went off to join Rod Stewart on bass. So he played a lot of Rod Stewart's hit, early hits. Then he went off to San Francisco. And funnily enough, I heard from I heard from him uh, a few days ago. He's contacted me on Facebook. So um, Pete was a really, wasn't he a three-piece band? So that was when Peter, Peter left. Yeah. Um, it was just myself and Judy. We thought, well, well, we've got a half a dozen songs or something to put together.
we got these gigs and these people were giving us gigs, you know, supporting people. I think it was for us when the airport convention had that car, uh, van crash. Right. And the drummer was killed in the, in, in the van. They had, they, they had a couple of uh, uh, um, benefit gigs organized. And we, we were in on that because of Judy's connection. And uh, we met up with uh, John Peel. And uh, it was him that gave us the name Trader Horn. Right. Uh, after his nanny, a nanny called Horn. Right. <laughs> uh, and Mrs. Horn or whatever. And they called it, they called it Trader Horn. So that was really name. So we took that and introduced to a guy who managed, we were introduced to a guy who managed a band called Steam Hammer and a few others. So we got, we got a few more gigs. We supported people like Yes, Pink Floyd. We were just supporting just all these guys, all these bands, because they like that. We were easy to move around. There was just two of us. Mm. And we got the offer. We got a deal from, from Pi Records, our new label, Don Records, to do an album. So I had to get down do some do some writing. So hmm. I wrote most of that in a few weeks. There was, apart from one song that I'd written when I was, when I was very young, called Jenny May. Uh, and uh, that was the only song I ever really written <laughs> before that. But yeah, that was that. That turned up uh, quite recently, a couple of years ago, in that TV, that American TV show on Netflix, um, Stranger Things. Oh, did it? <laughs> yeah, that was used on that. Yeah, that, that was the, the beginning of Trader Horn. Jenny May, are you coming out to play? I'm all alone and my daddy's gone away. I'll be Jesse James and you'll be an Indian. If we have a fight, I might even let you win, Jenny May. Hey, Jenny May, coming out to play.
Trader Horn, certainly after the album release, yet musical partnership with Judy didn't seem to last long. Um, Judy was a, a, a small, frail girl, and it was pretty tough on the road. I was driving, I was doing all the driving in the car. Seriously, we were going everywhere. We were going up to Portsmouth. As I say, down Devon, we were going up to North, we were going over to Belfast. As I say, I was doing all the driving. And if I'm driving, mm. if you're driving, sometimes it's, it's, it's easier for you to do all that traveling. But just having to sit there in a car day after day method, doing all this traveling can be incredibly exhausting. Yeah. Because you have nothing to do, really. And if it's dark, you can't read, you can't do anything. You're just sitting there staring out the window. But if you're driving, I suppose you're, you're active. And it just got too much for her. This was going to make her very ill. Mm. And she just pulled, she just pulled out. And uh, first the manager, no, 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 whatever. But she was getting, she was going to get married anyway to the Simon Stable. Again, it was handled right. What we should have done was left it for six months. You know, just had a clean break and then um, rejuvenate the thing. Uh, probably would have been a lot better because I was doing more writing as well. But uh, the management didn't. They got another girl and she was a fabulous singer. Saffron Summerfield, her name was. Saffron was uh, a lovely girl, a gorgeous girl. Fabulous voice. But it was just so amazingly different. Yeah. It's not, you're not talking about replacing the drummer in the band or a bass player. You were placing half the sound and half the band. And, and I said, I don't know if this is going to work or not. And of course, at that time, things started to change with management as well because they had a massive hit with Mungo Jerry in the summertime. Mm. They were booking us all around the world, the agency that handled us. All of a sudden, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't even get a phone call into them. Do you know what I mean? But when Judy left, they, um, the producer wanted Barry Murray wanted to keep me with High Records and redid the deal for me to do another couple of albums solo. So, yeah, so, so I did my solo album. Uh, for many people, Turning Green is your, your masterpiece. What a brilliant piece of music! It's it's kind of got that bit of even a, a gospel feel. Can you tell me about that track? And that was a kind of a bluesy, a bluesy kind of a number that I sat down. And strum the guitar, and it was very light, very light and kind of bluesy. Yeah. I give it a, well, my producer, Barry Murray, Barry also produced uh, in the summertime, and he says, I see something else to this. He says, I, I, I see the opposite. So I, I, I said, Well, I don't know anything about production and producing or what. So whatever. He says, Let me just do this. Let me do this. So, okay, Barry, you can do whatever you want. So I just replaced it, played the song, and he just brought in all the arranger, and I'm a arranger, I can't remember. It might have been Mike McNaught, I can't remember who did the arrangement. He did the arrangement, and they brought on strings, and they brought on women singers, and of course, it was just, this was just building up. It was all building up from basically what I had just played on the acoustic guitar and sang. It was quite amazing in the end, got the, the transformation for me. So I said, well, Barry, I do like it. I do like it very much. And he said, I think that was the opening track on the album. Down there, down 
on that solo album of yours, um, you know, such a, a disparate range of, of sounds. And as you say, the production, brilliant. Boy on the Bio was um, another one of my favourites. Uh, you must have been working with some fantastic musicians as well for, for that record. I was. I'd met some great guys around the London scene. As I say, with with, uh, with Pete Sears and Judy, where I lived near near Pete, Pete in, in South Kensington. And literally a couple of streets away, there was another, uh, it was an apartment that Pete had shared. Well, I don't think he shared, I think he was just crashing at this place. Yeah. It was one of those big basement apartments with a few rooms. And I didn't actually know whose place it was. Julie actually knew a girl from Stephanie. She married, I think, one of the Ken Kinsen guys. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe one. But anyway, uh, the guy that, that stayed in the flat was a, a guy called Nick who became Dick Nick. For, um, what they called the Hawkwind. And I'd, I'd, I'd known from about two years before, two or three years before, I'd known uh, Lenny. And Lenny was crashing out there as well. I think Ian McDonald was crashing out with King Crimson at Judy's place. All right, yeah. And so all these guys from these couple of flats, Judy, Judy lived up in North London and I lived down in South Kensington. For, I went off with Judy. I was offered a gig with Van Gaelis, which I turned down. We hung around together. <laughs> we hung around yeah. in London for a while. We went off to see, went off to gigs. We went off to the Marquee to see, I think probably Roy Gallagher or Joe Cocker or somebody, whatever. The Marquee was a great gig. And um, I said, yeah, didn't know a lot of nice people. So the influences were that for the album came from all different directions. I was I was given the freedom to do what I wanted to do, probably too much freedom. That's why the album is quite diverse.
sure you played that many live shows in that period was that why the the album didn't take off as much as it should have done i didn't do anything i didn't do anything at all so i that was my own fault so everything went downhill there i really just wanted to get in to be part of a band i I couldn't really go out and do it my own yeah Uh, the nearest i got was with with judy i suppose but uh, i couldn't really do it my own so I wanted to get back into a band, so I joined a band about 1970, 71, uh, a band called One, which was uh, myself and a bass player called Roscoe G. We had the band for about a year. We were playing all over Germany and over France and the UK, and uh, we came back to London. We did a we came back to London, and the band sort of broke down a little bit, so it was just three of us. And we kept an acoustic, and we did this residence in the Speakeasy in London. Uh, the Speakeasy is an exclusive kind of a club. I mean, I'd seen bands. I'd seen Jimi Hendrix at the Speakeasy. I met Jimi Hendrix at the Speakeasy. It's one of those kind of where the bands would go. You know, people would go that wouldn't get pestered by the general public. So you would have all these heads going into this this, this nightclub, and we got a gig there, a residency. Oh, I think we started at about 11 o'clock at night. <sighs> you know, I think it was the residence started at 11 o'clock at night till about half one. And Stevie, when we came down after uh, Roscoe, the, the job, playing bass in traffic. So Roscoe was off. So that was the end of that. So this is my, the end, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s for me. Three years before I met uh, John Gustafson. And we became friends for life, you know. Johnny died, died a few years ago. Uh, he became my best man. I was his best man. That type of thing, you know, was very, very, very close. So I'd, I'd known him for a long time. And John had come down. He had left the Mersey Beats. Yeah. So he, he was. We were. We were sort of living together in a place called Clackenwell Mansions, just down uh, near Tin Pan Alley in London. Yeah. We were hanging around there, Gus was fabulous singer, fabulous bass player. Began to get all this, this session work. So I got a lot of tips from Gus about sessions and stuff and whatever. So he rode me into a couple. Then I met up with a couple of fixers. We guys organized the sessions. Got, got to do a lot of session work. So that got me through, that got me through the 70s because there was so much of it, you know what I mean? This is before the smaller studio. Uh, not a really small studio. It was 
Up until then, the studios were EMI or Pi Records or Decca Records. That would be the studios. And in Tintan Alley, yeah. you would have the smaller studios. But during the 70s, all these other places like Morgan Studios were opened up in London. All these studios that sort of came, there were so many of them. And, and Conk Studio, I think it was Conk, they, it was the, the uh, Kinks, they had a studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was later on, probably towards the beginning or around the beginning of the 80s, when all these um, when modern technologies started overtaking modern music. And these machines were built, eight-track machines that you could have in your bedroom with uh, with um, all the outboard stuff that you can think of, or reverbs and delay pe- pedals and everything you need so you can make your records at home. So that really put an end to all the studio work. You see, a studio, you had to go into the studio and get it all done in two or three hours, get the whole lot done. They, they would use the, the uh, sex musicians because they can do it. They can read the charts of the music and they, they all get it done. Whether the young kids would be making mistakes, it would take forever. And studio, studio time costs a lot of money. So that's, that's, that's where we came in. We did all right out of it. But later on, when, when these, these home recording stuff came out, uh, the kids could take all the time they want to do it themselves. Yeah, so things dried up in a way, I guess. Uh, I've chosen uh, You Burn Me uh, by Jim Capaldi, and I think you're on uh, rhythm guitar on that. I did a few. I did an album with Jim down in uh, Island Records. Bye. 
You mentioned Johnny Gustafsson. You yeah. co-wrote a, a track with him that was a, a hit for Status Quo in the early 80s, Dear John. Dear John, that's right. Did you, did you write much with Yeah, we did. We wrote a lot of stuff together. funny thing was that uh, when we wrote Dear John, we did a demo. Do you remember in the Rock Pile? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here the studio. We recorded some demos down there. That was me, Gus, uh, Les Binks, Les from Judas Priest. And Billy Bremner from Chrissy Hine, the pretenders. So we, we knocked out a couple of songs at me and Gusset. And Dear John was one of them. John had the uh, cassette or whatever. And I was in Portugal with Clodagh Rogers. She was a Eurovision Song Contest when I was in Chloda. Clodagh. Right. She was from Ireland. So we were, I was doing uh, a couple of gigs over in Portugal with her when Gus rang me. And he said he gave, he gave the tape to Crow's manager, who rang him up. He said, uh, Crow, are interested in doing the song? Can you give me the lyrics? And I said, because he said, what are the lyrics? I can't remember. I, on the phone, I gave him everything I could remember. And he wrote it down and passed that on. And there's a couple of little funny, <laughs> couple of funny words in there that I thought were a bit weird. But uh, it went, went ahead. They recorded it. It became a hit. Hmm. That's, the, that's the way it goes. Big hit. Yeah, you have all, the, have all sorts. The way the business goes, find things to find out. There was another, there was a movie made in, in America. I think it was called Humble Pie. I never heard of it. Or they used another one of my songs as the opening credits. They did some stuff for children's TV and BBC. They used some of my material. Right. It just comes and goes, whatever's happening, and it's down to luck as well. <laughs>
mentioned about you felt felt more comfortable or you wanted to be in a, a band, but by the the, the mid to late eighties, you, you you formed uh, the the poor mouth. I've chosen no man's land, an excellent track. But the other members of poor mouth have been in some big bands themselves. Poor mouth uh, again was changing personnel. Poor mouth. We started the band with about a young lad called Tommy Lumbey. And Tommy played the rhythm guitar and sang. They put him in the But Tommy had no. He couldn't really communicate that well with the audience. So we were standing around between numbers, you know, moping around. What's next, Tommy? Call it. Uh, I don't know. I, I missed type of thing, you know. So hmm. I we moved around. I went into the middle and started doing a lot of chit chatting. Mind you, I'd learned a lot from my my time with Lonnie, Donegan. Played with Lonnie from 1978 for a few years. It was Lonnie told me you should be out fronting your own band. He said you should be doing your own band. When I'm standing up on the stage, I'm always looking at the man who's singing, like you waiting for my cues and instructions, what's happening there. But I'm standing in the middle, you don't have that. You're the one that has to communicate. How do you do it? And he gave me some great advice. From then, I, I always thought about uh, the things that he had told me. And it became very, very easy, quite easy. So uh, I fronted for my... If some things happened, I had an accident with my hand. I put the tendons in my left hand. The band were off the road for about six months while I had, while I had therapy. Uh, so the, the, while we were there, the two two lads and the band started doing gigs together, and they, they didn't want to lose the gigs and whatever. So we decided to call it a day. Band was, was only kind of known in London, really, around the London circuit. But we needed a record. We needed things to to do, whatever, and so yeah. you know something to something challenging so that we could go for it. But uh, it wasn't happening. That time, so um, the two lads went off, and I said, Well, I'm going to get some other guys and, and start a band. So we decided to keep, so oh, I'll keep the, the firm out of them. And uh, I've worked with uh, with Clive Dunker before. Clive was a drummer for Jethro Tull, and I'd worked in Italy with, with Clive a couple of years before. And I rang him up and asked him, Would he be interested? And he said, Yeah, he can die. He said, He loves the material, loves the songs and stuff. I said, Well, that's good, that's half the battle. Yeah. So we got we got we got Clive in. Uh, we got a few different guys in on bass. I used a guy from New Zealand called Lynn Edmondson, who to me was just an incredible bass player. Mm. He, he would have been like Mark King, you know, his style. Basically, and after Clive left, because Clive had uh, other stuff he was doing, about Howard Tibble, and Howard was just finished with Meatloaf. So yeah, the guys were pretty good, pretty cool. Said we would stand together forever and ever. Always be friends. So when we carved our names, I put your name above me. And now my story has got no end. Now my story has got no end So hold my ears Cause I don't want to hear 
But we were never second hand Oh, now I am Stuck in no man's land Stuck in no man's land
90s you were a solo artist and quite prolific in in the 90s i've chosen uh sing for your daddy which is oh, from a, an album of yours from the late 90s shadow boxing i thought i had my experience with the perma fronting the band and i and i began to enjoy it so i had no problems going solo i even i even did some stuff just acoustic time yeah and live gigs and i thought if i had done this when i was younger you know things wouldn't have been well, it would have turned out differently. I had the confidence uh, to do it now at that time in the 90s, yeah. Do you think you were just comfortable in your own skin? I was, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely now, yeah. There's no problem. I can sit down and either. I can just play my songs because I don't have to worry anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that my songs have proved themselves. So I've done, I've done a few things. I've done a few festivals, just gone on with the acoustic time. Uh, and the same festival I would have played a year before with with a band. I put a band together. I can put a band together overnight and perform, so there's no problems with that side of it. But, uh, yeah, comfortable enough to, to go out and do what I want to do. Do you have any memories of writing Sing For Your Daddy? I haven't, I haven't played that much for quite a while. That album was influenced by my kids uh, when they were born. most amazing time ever. I suppose in my life, that was just at the right time for me. Right. You know, ah. couldn't, could not have been any later. There were sort of, uh, the songs that I had written on that album, like St. George's Day, was uh, when my son was expected to arrive. Yeah. It was the 24th of April, St. George's Day. I can't, I can't remember the actual date. But my, my son arrived, he arrived uh, two days late. But it was with that in mind, you know, that's what my influence came to yeah. to write something about that day because I thought it was on that day he was going to arrive. Think for that again, again, probably when my son Ryan was born. I wrote another one when my daughter was born. Just the powerful influence of an event like that just makes you, if you're writing, it just forces you to carry on and finish it and get the song done. That I have been 
I'd rather be with you So paint for me a fallen star Let it land where you are And we will ride in a jaunting car Sing for your daddy oh We'll sail away on the high tide And I'll try to catch the moon And I'll take it home to you For to play And say good night. Let your mama hold you tight, and I will love you with all my might. Sing for your daddy, Say good night. Let your mama hold you tight, and I will love you with all my might. Sing for your daddy, oh! I'll sing for your daddy, Just this year, you released uh, another solo album, The Cherry Vale Files, of the next song being Out in the Wild West. Yeah, I did um, Cherry Vale Files. There's uh, a bunch of songs that I had. I thought, what am I going to do with these? I mean, there's even more than that on the album. I cut it down. I didn't want too many tracks on the album. What am I going to do with all these songs? The genre is just completely different. You know what I mean? Mm. Like there's uh, the radio waves is like almost jazzy compared to uh, out in the Wild West. It's just all the songs are completely different. I I put them together, left it as it was. I sent a lot of them out to friends in the business. Uh, out in the Wild West, about America. Yeah. But it's up to America.
down to Reno, it was hard on my feet. Breaking out of Reno and dead on my feet. No peace for the wicked, she won't let me be. She got her mama's good looks and the automobile. Daddy taught the good book and he taught her how to steal. We are wild out in the wild west. 
Long Whistle Blowing. That song, Long Whistle Blowing, would be about a guy that I met, Tom, his name was, when I was in, in Lake Tahoe in California. And I met this guy. He had basically left home, abused by his father and all this kind of stuff. And told me the story why he ended up there. And this is the most beautiful place in the world. And, but when he, he grew up, I can't remember, was either San Francisco or Los Angeles, where he grew up. He told me he had to get out of it. And I was just waiting for the train to get out. So kind of a, a bit of an influence. Uh, gave me the story to write right. about him. That's a dis- dysfunctional family, really. But with a kind of a gaiety in the song. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other one is the same type of song. Just, just kids on the run, you know, out in the Wild West. Thinking, so I met people in America, li- literally, in Los Angeles, had gone there, thinking that they're going to see film stars walking down the street. And they've gone there to try and become a star, a famous. Some people say that I talk too much. I ought to keep my big mouth shut. Tonight I'm gonna ride my love and make my getaway. I can hear the train, I can hear the night train, I can hear a train, I can hear the night train, long whistle blowing. The old man died, the factory hand, he could have been somebody, but he didn't have a plan. He said he loved me all that he can, but he beat me anyway. I can hear a train, I can hear the night train, I can hear a train, I can hear the night train, long whistle blowing. The day he got fired Out on the street He got old and tired Once he used to be hardwired To his Harley and the road Now I can hear a train I can hear the night train I can hear a train I can hear the night train Long whistle blowing Your goodbyes, I must be on my way. I can hear a train, I can hear the night train, I can hear a train, I can hear the night train, long whistle blowing. Nothing to do when the sun goes down Broken hearts line up 
the bar You might get lucky tonight Out in the car song today is take you home yeah. is that a, a new song or an old song no that's a, a new one right i, I had this idea of, of a ghost writing a, a ghost singing a song and this what it is the ghost of an old couple and he's keeping an eye on her he's waiting for the time and he's going to come to take her home people can go onto your website uh to, for more information about the the cherry veil files uh and, and your book i sideman is it jackie Nice and simple. That's right. I can call it. I can call it dot com, and it's an old, it's the old cottage industry. So it'll be me and my kids, yeah. me, my wife, and my kids, sort of looking after everything ourselves. So and then, so I'm so delighted, so happy with it, the way things turned out. Didn't turn out to be a millionaire, but mm. I, I just keep selling this book, and I'm, I've sent, send them. Everywhere, Russia, Japan, yeah. Australia, America, absolutely everywhere. Thanks so much for your time, Jackie. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, uh, go right back into the sort of early and mid 60s, but also go right up to date to your uh, latest latest album. I, I do recommend heartily your uh, book, I Sideman, as well. And, and just um, just a reminder for listeners that the uh, the then Belfast Gypsies reissue is on uh, Grapefruit Cherry Red as well. So thank you. No problem, Jeff. Thanks very much.
Now the winter's come How the snowflakes fall And if a face should call By your window Let your tired eyes see That it's only me And tomorrow there will be No more sorrow When I come for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.